0: You will be aware that Friday is my Sabbath day of rest, and often I like, if the day is good, I like to head out into God's creation and to appreciate God's creation on a Friday. And this Friday just gone, and sometimes that will involve a meander, a zigzagging meander around a golf course. And this Friday just gone, I headed out to Waldronville, and if you remember Friday was a beautiful morning, it started off a misty morning. Uh, but those of you who live in Waldronville know that that's a secret climate out there and the mist lifted about two hours before it did in Dunedin. But I got to the first tee and I lined up my first shot on the first hole out at Waldronville and for those of you who don't believe in miracles, you should have been there (laughs) because the first drive landed on the middle of the fairway. Now this is something of a miracle for this particular golfer. And I was reflecting, and I was thanking God for the beauty of the, it was a a stunning day, the autumn colors, there wasn't a breath of wind, and I was thanking God for the beauty of his creation. And then I started to reflect reflect on Genesis, and I thought, as my round of golf unfolded, this is Genesis all over, because that first shot, it all went pear-shaped after that, I went from, literally, I went from trying to hit the green to on the ninth hole hitting the clubhouse, but that's a whole nother story. This morning, church, we are making a transition from the Gospel of Luke, we are making a transition to the book of Genesis. And we are, as Julie Andrews says, starting at the very beginning, a good place to start. So let's pause for prayer and ask for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the gift of this day. We want to thank you for the gift of your word, which we have just heard read to us. And we ask that you would speak to us through this word by the power of your spirit. Humble our proud hearts. Heal our broken hearts. Strengthen our timid hearts that we might see Jesus this morning, we ask in his name. Amen. In 1936, Leslie Newbegin uh, was a missionary who went out with his wife from England and went to serve in India, and he served there for 40 years. He had a profound impact for the gospel. But very shortly after he arrived in India, he was afflicted with an incredibly uh, debilitating uh, bus accident that left him in bedridden for two years. He had a terrible bus crash and it was possible that he was going to have his leg amputated. And he couldn't do anything for two years. He'd just been sent out onto the mission field to the other side of the world. He was there in India, has this bus crash and can't do anything for two years. And he starts to question God, what is going on in this? I was following you in faith and here I am, I can't do a thing. And he started asking some of his friends around him uh, what's going on. And when he discussed the reason for the crash with his Western colleagues, his Western colleagues on investigation said it was quite clear the bus hadn't had any maintenance done to it for a number of months. The brakes had failed, and so the reason that you are now laid up is because of the poor maintenance to the bus, and that caused the crash. The, crash, the brakes failed. But when Leslie started discussing it with some of his newfound Hindu friends, his Hindu friends had a completely different perspective. And they said, Leslie, it's quite simple. This is the will of God. This is the will of God. I wonder which is the most plausible answer for you. The lack of mechanical maintenance caused the accident that didn't need to happen or the will of God is sovereign over all things and allowed this event to take place. Now, if you've grown up, as I have done, in a Western culture over the last few decades, and you've imbibed the Western worldview, then, like me, you'll probably think the most plausible answer is that, yeah, there was a lack of maintenance that was done to the brakes, and that was the cause for the crash that you had, and that's why Leslie found himself two years incapacitated. That's the air that we breathe. That's the public schooling that you receive, the assumption that our culture defaults to, that this material world is governed by natural laws of cause and effect. But this worldview is an historical and cultural minority view. The Word of God begins with the opening phrase, in the beginning, God. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me, will you, to Genesis 1 genesis 1 verse 1 in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of god was hovering over the waters when i began my preparations for this particular message i wanted to do i knew there was a theological. Uh, essay that had been written in the middle of the 19th century, no, the middle of the 20th century, and it was entitled The Origin of the Universe, and so I didn't know, have exactly know where that uh, essay was, so I went into Google and searched it up on Google as you do, and of course the first uh, item that came up when I put in The Origin of the Universe was Wikipedia, and this is what it read to me. The earth was formed around 5.4 billion years ago, approximately one-third of the age of the universe, by accretion from the solar nebula. Volcanic outgassing probably created the primordial atmosphere and then the ocean, but the early atmosphere contained almost no oxygen. What on earth does that mean? I wondered. The earth is formed by accretion from the solar nebula. Come on, Patrick, what does that mean? Genesis 1, verse 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Firstly, let me say a word or two about this, the character of this passage, what it is not and what it is. And then we'll consider how we can understand it. Firstly, let me say that this text is not a scientific textbook. It's not a textbook explaining how the stars and the universe were formed. It is, rather, the flawless Word of God, describing the origin of the universe, describing, we might say, the origin of our species. Textbook it is not. And the clue to it character and its form is the rhythm and the meter that the author uses and god said and god said and god said and god saw and god saw and god saw and it was good and it was good and it was good there was evening there was morning the first day the second day and the third day and on it goes the passage is close to a litany It's poetic. There is a meter to it, even a prayer, we might say. David Atkinson, in his commentary on Genesis, describes these opening verses of Genesis, the opening verses of our Bible, as a hymn of praise to the majesty of God, our Creator. A hymn of praise to the majesty of God, our Creator. On Tuesday at midweek breakfast, We listened to Psalm 100, which I realize makes midweek breakfast 100 weeks old. And we celebrated by having bacon and eggs and a hot cross bun cake. How good was that? Psalm 100 said the following to us. Know that the Lord is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture, enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Genesis is a hymn of praise to the majesty of God, our creator. It needs to be known, the Genesis was written against a backdrop of other origin creation stories set in the ancient Near East. And there were many stories describing how this universe came into being. Some with similarities to the Genesis accounts and some with very distinct differences. Some of the aspects of the primeval chaos, the deep and the ocean, are familiar to ancient Near East other origin stories. But the key distinguishing feature of Genesis that sets it apart is its reference to one sovereign God who is transcendent over his creation. He is separate from his creation The pagan accounts abound with many gods and monsters battling for power and devotion. But even the sea monster, referenced here in Genesis in verse 21, are created by God. God is all-powerful. God is transcendent. He is over the created order, and order there is as he creates this universe. One God, and yet in the verse 3 verses We see clues of the doctrine of Trinity, God creating, the Spirit of God hovering, God's Word is spoken. God creates out of nothing. Now, logically, something must be eternal in this universe. I remember, well, about two months before coming to faith in Christ, reading Stephen Hawkins' account of a brief history of man, reading this genius of a man describing how he felt that the universe was created describing the big bang and i remember coming away feeling fully unsatisfied that this doesn't answer the deep questions that i'm yearning to know what happened in the beginning what caused the spark in the beginning gods and god said let there be lights And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Now, the rhythm established here in day one continues through all of the days of this creation accounts. God speaks light into being. He sees that it is good. He separates the light into day and night. There was evening, there was morning, and the first day. This is the rhythm for the first five days of creation. First, six days of creation. The six days are set up in such a way that there is a space that is created, and then God goes about filling that space. The first three days, the three spaces include the heavens, then there is the sky and sea around the earth, and then the third space on day three is the lands. And then God fills those spaces, He fills them. With the sun and the moon and the stars on day four, with the fish and the birds on day five, and the land is filled with the land animals on day six, and on the seventh day, God rests. Notice in the first days of creation that this creation is good. The repetition in verse four in verse 12 in verse 10 and verse 25, it is good. God sees it is good. It is good. it is good. It is good. Notice the separating that's taken place, the light and the darkness, the water, the land and the sea. Notice also in a similar vein the duality which is being created day and night, land and seas, the two great lights, supremely the duality reaches its pinnacle in God creating humankind in His own image, male and female He created us. And so in verse 24, we read the following. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, the wild animals, each according to its kind, and it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock, all the wild animals, and over the creatures and move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea, the birds of the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant in the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, that will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give you every green plant of food, and it was so." It's just a note for men's breakfast chefs, every green plant I give you for food. Just a wee note for the vegetarians out there for you. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, and the 6th day. It's hard for me to overemphasize how important Those few verses that I've just read are for the healthy functioning, not only of your lives, but of any culture. It's hard for me to overemphasize how important those verses are. For 2,000 years, the doctrine of human beings carrying the image of God has shaped our Western culture. For thousands of years prior to the birth of Christ, Judaism placed value on human beings that was completely at odds to not only the surrounding cultures around them, but to all cultures, the value of human life, because we're created in the image of God. But today, we turn our back on this truth. At our peril, we turn our back on this truth at our peril where does the value of human life come from well if you ask the secular materialist their answer is perhaps found in the person's ability and usefulness to society if you ask the capitalist perhaps it's the ability to produce economic value if you ask the naturalist it's the strongest and the fittest who will survive if you ask the rationalists our value comes from our intelligence but what happens if you don't meet these criteria What happens if you lose some of these attributes? What happens to the unwanted child? What happens to the mentally ill? What happens to the elderly? Well, I'll tell you what happens. They get excluded and eventually they get exterminated. 1994, the dehumanizing of a population. I'm not sure if it was the Hutus or the Tutsis, but they started talking in Rwanda about the other tribal group in dehumanizing terms, they started calling them cockroaches. This tribe is a cockroach. They excluded them and 900,000 people were exterminated because the value of human life was forgotten. When we forget or when we lose sight of or when we reject these verses, the consequences are dire. In the Second World War, Adolf Hitler did the same thing with the Jews. He started talking about them as vermins, dehumanizing them. They were excluded, and then they were exterminated. Disturbingly, we are quickly seeing our culture doing a similar thing, turning away from the truth of these verses, rejecting even these verses. And these people become disposable because they're no longer of worth to our culture. The early church building on the Jewish teachers rejected abortion and infanticide, and their pagan neighbors were bewildered at this. Why were they picking up their discarded children from the rubbish heaps? In the first two centuries of the Christian church, no Christian served in the imperial army because life was too precious for them to take a life. Slaves were welcome at the Lord's table. They broke bread and the slave took bread alongside the free man. Long before William Wilberforce dismantled the Western slave trade, Gregory of Nicaea in 379 denounced slavery. Women were treated with dignity in a Christian marriage and the pagan neighbors were going, what is this about? Why are you doing this? Where does this dignity find its basis? So absent from pagan culture, then and now, turn to verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. That's where your value comes from. That's where your neighbor's value comes from. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And then God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy because he rested from all his work of creating that he had done. In the previous verse, Moses has reminded us of the dignity of work. The god-given vocation of humans to steward and rule and care for earth and we'll talk more about that next week but the start of chapter two is the basis for what later in exodus is called the sabbath the seventh day where god rested from his work six days god works and then he blesses the seventh day he makes it holy the text says because he rests he sets it apart Now in Sinai, God's model for resting on the seventh day becomes a law for Israel. And so in Deuteronomy 31, 12, we read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, You must observe my Sabbath. This will be a sign between me, you and you, for the generations to come, so that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. It is a day of rest. It is a day of worship. Now you and I know that there are many jobs that are easy to switch off from and park it but there are also many jobs that it's less easy to turn off it's less easy to switch off they become open-ended they become all-consuming it's easy to think i need to keep working i've just got a little bit more that i need to do i'm just going to go and turn my computer on and just do that last bit of work that i need to do before monday Protestants have long been known for their work ethic because the scriptures encourage us to work hard. There is a dignity in work that is described here. But the scriptures also encourages us and we must realize that there can be a vanity and a pride which says I must keep working because unless I do it it won't get done. All of creation was created in six days, and then God rested, and He set that day apart as holy. We cease from work to refocus on God's. We cease from work to remind ourselves that we're not in charge, and we disconnect from the world to be set apart as holy unto the Lord's. On the sixth day, on the seventh day, the Lord rested. If I can make one practical application from this text for you this morning. Let me encourage you to one day a week, turn off your cell phone, turn off the internet, and you say, you said what, Stuart? You said what? Turn off my cell phone one day a week. If God created the heavens and the earth in six days and rested, you too can rest for one day. I want to take a moment just to speak to the students in our congregation, whether you're in high school or whether you're in university or politic, and to encourage you this morning. The air that you breathe, the context that you find yourselves in, is swimming in this secular, material, Western worldview. But let me encourage you to not allow the institutions that are teaching you to rob you from the truth that you have just heard this morning. The greatest minds down through the ages have known that there is more to this world and this universe than can be seen and can be measured and can be observed. The greatest minds, whether it's Francis Bacon, whether it's Isaac Newton, whether it's C.S. Lewis, whether it's Jay or Tolkien the greatest minds know that there is more to this world than can be measured, can be seen, or can be experienced. So let me encourage you to not allow the pride of your institution that's teaching you or the pride within your own heart to rob you of the truth of God's word that says to you and says to all of us, That God created this earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was good. In all its beauty, in all its wonder, in all its glory, God created this earth. God speaks. And the Word of God creates a universe of such beauty and diversity and wonder. It takes our breath away. Tonight, go out after tea. I encourage you, go out after tea and look up to the skies and see the heavens that God spoke into being. The interpretive key to Genesis 1 is John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was With God in the beginning, through him, all things were made. Human beings, you and I, were created in his image. And because of that truth, we carry a dignity. We carry an infinite worth, as indeed does our neighbor. The interpretive key to Genesis 1 is Colossians 1. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. God's given you and I dominion. God's given you and I an authority to steward this good earth that he has created. And the interpretive key for Genesis 1 is Ephesians 1, where we learn that the heavens and the earth will be united under the authority of Christ in the fullness of time, and we get to steward alongside him. God looks and he sees this earth and he says it's good, it's very good. And the interpretive key for the goodness of this earth is described in the good shepherd who calls you and I to come and follow him. On the seventh day, God rested. And the key for entering into God's rest is the one who says to you and I, come all who are weary and I will give you rest. The interpretive key to the Sabbath is the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, not by accident, but with purpose and with love. He fills the earth with beauty and wonder. It is good. And if you're struggling to see the beauty and the wonder and the purpose of your life, if the culture around you has been robbing you of your reason for being and you're struggling to see the wonder of the world around you and the beauty in your own life, then let me encourage you again to look up. Look up this week. Look up and see your Creator. Look up and see your Redeemer who spoke this good earth into being, who gives you a dignity because he's created you in his image and he's calling you to follow him. Let's bow our heads and our hearts in prayer. Father, as we gather in your name this morning, we do so with a, with a sense of wonder and a sense of awe at the majesty of not only what we have just heard, but what we see around us. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. I pray, even now, Lord God, that you, by the power of your spirit, would be ministering the truth of this text to our lives, this word to our lives. That we would we would look up, that we would see the majesty, we would see the glory, we would see the wonder of the world that you have created, but not only the world that you have created we would see the beauty and the wonder of the lives around us, human beings created in your image. Not only those around us, but we would be reminded afresh of the dignity, the eternal worth that we have because we are created in your image. Minister this truth to us deep beyond our brains, Lord. Minister this truth into our hearts and into our very spirits that we might see your good works. We might see your glorious works. More than that, we might see you, Jesus, in all your glory and seek to follow you. This we ask in your name. Amen.